What's up, guys? My name is Aaron Dowen, and you may know me as a host from Beards and Comics Podcast, or you might know me as a writer through Catalyst Comic Studio on titles like Tilts, Welcome to Everville, Paradigm, and then other stuff we have coming out as well. Um, but you may not know that I'm also a musician, and I also have a love for prose writing. So we thought, what better way to fuse that all together than to take a night where I can bring you guys through monster stories and songs. So not all of these stories are going to be terrifying or blood-curdling. That's not the point of this. Um, in fact, most of them are, are kind of tame, but they're short stories that I found written by other writers online that I wanted to read, and they all revolve around specific monsters. And then I'm going to flip it into what kind of a song I think matches that story. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, this is pre-recorded because it took so much to put together, but be hanging out with you guys in the chat so if you guys want to talk um, just throw in some comments let people know that you're watching this because let's get real once you realize what's going on here you're going to realize you've never seen anything like this at a con virtual or not so it's going to be a lot of fun and i hope you guys enjoy it you never know what's going to happen and let's get into the first story this story is really cool with a uh, a monster that's one i wasn't really really aware of I had heard the name, but I didn't really know the backstory. But yeah, let's get into it. Legend has it that in 1735, a Pines resident known as Mother Leeds found herself pregnant for the 13th time. Leeds is the name of one of New Jersey's earliest settlers, and many descendants of the Leeds family can still be found throughout New Jersey to this day. Mother Leeds was not living a wealthy lifestyle by any means. Her husband was a drunkard who made few efforts to provide for his wife and 12 children. Reaching the point of absolute exasperation upon learning of her 13th child, she raised her hands to the heavens and proclaimed, Let this one be a devil. Mother Leeds went into labor a few months later on a tumultuously stormy night, no longer mindful of the curse she had uttered previously regarding her unborn child. Her children and husband huddled together in one room of their Leeds Point home, while local midwives gathered to deliver the baby in another. By all accounts, the birth went routinely, and the 13th Leeds child was a seemingly normal baby boy. Within minutes, however, Mother Leeds' unholy wish of months before began to come to fruition. The baby started to change. It changed right before her very eyes. Within moments, it transformed from a beautiful newborn baby into a hideous creature unlike anything the world had ever seen. The wailing infant began at incredible rate. It sprouted horns from the top of its head, and talon-like claws tore through the tips of its fingers. Leathery bat-like wings unfurled from its back, and hair and feathers sprouted all over the child's body. Its eyes began glowing bright red as they grew larger in the monster's gnarled and snarling face. The creature savagely attacked its own mother, killing her then turn its attention to the rest of the horrified onlookers who witnessed this tempestuous transformation. It flew at them, clawing and biting, voicing unearthly shrieks the entire time. It tore the midwives limb from limb, maiming some and killing others. The monster then knocked down the door to the next room, where its own father and siblings cowered in fear and attacked them all, killing as many as it could. Those who survived tell the tale, then watched in horror as the rotten beast sprinted to the chimney and flew up, destroying it on the way and leaving a pile of rubble in its wake. The creature then made good its escape into the darkness and desolation of the Pine Barrens, where it has lived ever since. 
To this day, the creature, known varyingly as the Leeds Devil and the Jersey Devil, claims the pines as its own and terrorizes any who are unfortunate enough to encounter. Oh, that story was a lot of fun. Uh, it's one that I wasn't too familiar with, but I found it online and I thought it would be uh, really fun to do. And it went really well with the song that I have planned. Uh, that was found on weirdnj.com and it's the Jersey Devil story. So definitely go check out their website. They have a bunch of crazy stuff on there. But let's get into this song that I think corresponds perfectly with this story. One of the finest in elegance. A gentle touch. He rocks in the treetops all the day long, hopping and bopping and singing his song. All the little birds on Jaybird Street love to hear the robin go tweet, tweet, tweet. Rockin' robin, tweet, tweet. Rockin' robin, tweet, tweet. Oh, rockin' robin, we're really gonna rock tonight. Swallow every chickadee, every little bird in the tall old tree. Flies or owl, the big black crow, flap the air when you see an old bird go. Rockin' on the tree, tweedly, rockin' on the tree, tweedly. the cats out of the bag as you know and i hope you really enjoyed that but as you know i am such a big oldies fan that i thought the funniest thing i could do with this is to read a monster story and then pick an oldies song that i think reflects the story and so that's what we're going to be doing tonight we have four more stories which means four more songs so i hope you guys stick around get in the chats let's talk about it it's a lot of fun uh, let's move into the next short story that i think you guys are going to really identify with because this monster is just everywhere now. Cthulhu, they call me. Great Cthulhu. Nobody can pronounce it right. Are you writing this down? Every word? Good. Where shall I start? Hmm. Very well then. The beginning. Write this down, Widerly. I was spawned uncounted eons ago in the dark myths of Kaya no, of course I don't know how to spell it. Write it as it sounds. Of nameless nightmare parrots under a gibbous moon. It wasn't the moon of this planet, of course. It was a real moon. On some nights it filled over half the sky, and as it rose, you could watch the crimson blood drip and trickle down its bloated face, staining it red. 
until at its height it bathed the swamps and towers in a gory dead red light. Those were the days. Or rather the nights, on the whole. Our place had a sun of sorts, but it was old, even back then. I remember that on the night it finally exploded, we all slithered down to the beach to watch. But I get ahead of myself. I never knew my parents. My father was consumed by my mother as soon as he had fertilized her, and she, in her turn, was eaten by myself at my birth. That is my first memory, as it happens, squirming my way out of my mother, the gamey taste of her still in my tentacles. Don't look so shocked, Waddily. I find you humans just as revolting. Which reminds me, did they remember to feed the Shagath? I thought I heard it gibbering. I spent my first few thousand years in those swamps. I did not like this, of course, for I was the color of a young trout and about four of your feet long. I spent most of my time creeping up on things and eating them and in my turn avoiding being crept up and eaten. So passed my youth. And then one day, I believe it was a Tuesday, I discovered that there's more to life than food. Sex? Of course not. I will not reach that stage until after my next estivation. Your piddly little planet will long be cold by then. It was that Tuesday that my uncle Haster slithered down to my part of the swamp with his jaws fused. It meant that he did not intend to dine that visit and that we could talk. Now, that is a stupid question, even for you, Waddily. I don't use either of my mouths in communicating with you, do I? Very well, then. One more question like that, and I'll find someone else to relate my memoirs to, and you'll be feeding the Shagoth. We are going out, said Haster to me. Would you like to accompany us? We? I asked him. Who's we? Myself, he said. Azatoth, Yagsatoth, Nyarlathotep, Satahuga, La, Shabnagurath, Young Yagoth, and a few others. You know, he said, the boys. I'm freely translating you here, widely you understand. Most of them are A, bi, or trisexual, and old La Shabnagurath has at least a thousand years young, or so it says. That branch of the family has always been given to exaggeration. We are going out, he concluded, and we were wondering if you fancied some fun. I did not answer him at once. To tell the truth, I wasn't all that fond of my cousins. And due to some particularly eldritch distortion of the planes, I've always had a great deal of trouble seeing them clearly. They tend to get fuzzy around the edges, and some of them, Sabaoth in this case, have a great many edges. But I was young. I craved excitement. There has to be more to life than this, I would cry, as the delightfully folded charnel smells of the swamp miasmatized around me and overheard the Nugu Nugu and the Zitadors whooped and scarped. I said yes, as you have probably guessed, and I oozed after Haster until we reached the meeting place. As I remember, we spent the next moon discussing where we were going, as Atoth had his heart set on a distant Shigai, and the Arlotohep had a thing about an unspeakable place. I can't for the life of me think why. The last time I was there, everything was shut. It was all the same to me, Waddily. Anywhere wet and somehow suddenly wrong, I feel at home. But Yogsatov had the last word, as he always does, when we came to this plane. You've met Yogsatov, have you not? My two little-legged beastie? I thought as much. He opened the way for us to come here. To be honest, I didn't think much of it. Still don't. If I'd known the trouble we were going to have, I doubt I'd have bothered. But I was younger then. 
as I remember our first stop was Dimpocosa. Scared the bleep out of me, that place. These days I can look at your kind without a shudder, but all those people without a scale or a pseudopod between them gave me the quivers. The King in Yellow was the first I ever got on with, the Tatterdemalion King. You don't know of him? Necronomicon, page 704 of the complete edition, hints at his existence, and I think that idiot Prin mentions him in De Verme's Mistress. And then there's Chambers, of course. Lovely fella, once you get used to him. He was the one who first gave me the idea. What the unspeakable hells is there to do in this dreary dimension, I asked him. He laughed when I first came here. He said, a mere color out of space. I asked myself the same question. Then I discovered the fun one can have conquering these odd worlds, subjugating inhabitants, getting them to fear and worship you. It's a real laugh. Of course, the old ones don't like it. The old ones, I asked. No, he said, old ones. It's capitalized, funny chaps. Like great starfish-headed barrels with filmy great wings and they fly through space with. Fly through space? Fly? I was shocked. I didn't think anybody flew these days. Why bother when one can sluggle, eh? I could see why they called him the old ones. Pardon, old ones. What do these old ones do? I asked the king. I'll tell you all about sluggling later, probably. Pointless, though. You lack Wanashan. Although perhaps badminton equipment do almost as well. Where was I? Oh, yes. What do these old ones do? I asked the king. Nothing much, he explained. They just don't like anybody else doing it. I undulated, writhing my tentacles as if to say, I've met such beings in my time, but here the message was lost on the king. Do you know of any places ripe for conquering? I asked him. He waved his hand vaguely in the direction of a small and dreary patch of stars. There's one over there that you might like, he told me. It's called Earth. Bit off the beaten track, but lots of room to move. Silly bugger. That's all for now, Waddley. Tell someone to feed my shagoth on your way out. Now, if you guys just heard that short story, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. At the end of this episode, I'm going to throw a little clip up of me trying to pronounce all those crazy names in that short story. And if you didn't realize it, that is a short story that was actually written by Neil Gaiman on his blog. And that is uh, that was a really fun read. There was more to the story. If you want to read the rest of it, uh, I have the link up at the end of this. So go check it out. Uh, let's get into the song. sun and I'll be sitting when the evening comes watching the ships roll in then I'll watch them roll away again I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay wasting time I left my woman Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I have nothing to live for Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away 
just sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Just gonna sit, just gonna sit on the top of the bay. Now I'm just gonna sit, watch all the ships go away. I'm sitting here resting my bones, and this loneliness won't leave me alone. It's two thousand miles I roam. Just to make this dark my home Now I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Honestly, I mean, come on. Was there even another choice? I want to go ahead and just jump right into the next one. We're still keeping with the sea theme. This is kind of a twisted version of a story that most of you guys know, which is a twisted version of a classic story too. But anyway, let's get into it. A long time ago, in a land far from this one, there lived a beautiful mermaid named Erilyn. She was the daughter to a sea king who ruled their land with prosperity and a merciful hand. She was his firstborn child and only heir, as her mother had died many years before. On warm, sunny days, she would gaze through the beams of light scattering, shimmering through the ripples. She could swear that her mother was casting the warmth over her, but she felt no loss. She grew into a young woman with admiration for her father and his guidance of all creatures of the sea, and longed to follow in his footsteps as monarch. Erlin had been gifted with a beautiful voice and all of the merpeople swore it was a gift from Poseidon himself. Her father would coax her to sing her melodies to all the members of their kingdom, and they would cheer as her tunes carried out around them. As her voice grew tired, they would beg her to keep going, and it bothered her, but only for a little, for it was her greatest gift. On the eve of Erlin's 14th birthday, her father took a new wife. She was much younger than Erlin's mother, but she was to bear her father's new child, a merman to be named Samandra. He came into the world to a lavish party in his honor, and Erlen whispered the song of the sea into his ear, and she held him in her arms for the first time. She promised to teach him of all the things she had learned from her father of their kingdom, and together they would rule the ocean as temperate leaders. As Samandra grew in size, he would swim by his sister's side as she showed him all the wonders of their land, from the smallest kelp fields to the biggest whales. He would giggle as she hummed her tunes and twist his tiny fingers into her hair, and Erin loved him. But the tides were changing in their empire, and her father paid her little attention as he doted on his new bride and tiny son. He neglected their lessons and took only to spending time with her when he wanted her to sing the song of the sea. When Erilyn turned 17, she approached her father, who was sitting regally on his throne, 
speaking candidly with a swordfish about the state of their military. She floated in his eyeline, but waited until he had concluded his business, as she had been taught since she was very young. Father, why do you no longer teach me the lessons of monarchy? She asked quizzically, when she had his attention. Dear child, he replied, you are no longer the heir to the throne. This burden is no longer thrust upon you. What do you mean, father? Samundra will take my place as ruler of this kingdom. It is his birthright as my only son. Erlen floated closer, trying to soak in his words and make sense of their meaning. But it has always been my dream to follow your legacy, she pleaded. Why can I not take your place? Her father laughed. You need not worry yourself of the tidings of men. Just sing us your melodies. That is your gift, given to you by Poseidon himself. But I can do more for this kingdom than entertain them with my voice. Please give me a chance to prove myself. Enough of this, her father said firmly. I acquired you a new hairpiece of fine shell and pearl. Wear it tonight when you sing for us. He reached behind him and pulled out a beautiful headdress, and then set a bewildered Erlen on her way without another word. The months turned to years, and Erlen grew tired of the song of the sea. She grew weary of her father telling her to choose a mate, and of the young merman commenting on her shells and her hair. She grew lackluster and boring, and no longer gazed into the rays of the sun as they surrounded her. The merfolk started to whisper about her, but she paid them no mind. She took to keeping to herself and playing only with young Samundra, for she harbored him no ill will. O oh, Poseidon, she cried out in the night, is there nothing more in the ocean for me than my voice? Do I serve no other purpose? The sound of Poseidon's voice rang in her ears. I have given you a gift, child, the voice spoke. It is yours to do with what you wish. Dare you ask for more? On Samundra's coronation day, as future heir to the throne, Erlen's father turned to her with cold eyes and demanded her to sing the song of the sea. He was disappointed in her and grew bored and tired trying to coax her into being a proper mermaid. Erlen stared into his eyes, her turquoise irises hard on his, and then fled. She swam until her fins ached, and then she climbed to the surface to catch the rays of the sun on a barnacle-covered rock. Some sailors happened to be traveling nearby and began shouting loudly at Erlen, trying to coax her to sing to them, to hold them, and to love them. So she cried out with her breathtaking voice, and as she lured the ship closer and closer, she grinned a wicked smile as the hold broke on the rock she inhabited. It shot both passengers and loot into the depths of the ocean that was formerly her home, and she smiled. To this day, legend tells of a siren named Erlen, whose voice led sailors to their doom. She's painted as a violent monster, a devilish temptress. But if you happen to spot her, she's always smiling. For now, her voice is finally her own. So that story was written by Alex Gursky, and I found it online. Uh, the website will be thrown up at the end of this, um, but it was at theodysseyonline.com. It was under their uh, short stories. But yeah, that was written by Alex. Great job. I thought it was really cool. And now you guys know, not every story is going to be a terrifying, twisted tale. I wanted it to be um, more grounded in the sense of it's something that we can all just hang out, listen to, and entertain ourselves together. But what song could I possibly pick to move into after that? Hey, red and 
down in the hollow Playing a new game Laughing and running, hey, hey Skipping and jumping In the misty morning fog with Hearts thumping in you Brown eyed bird. You're my brown eyed bird. Whatever happened to Tuesday, it's so slow. Going down in the old mine with transistor radio. Standing in the sunlight, laughing. Hiding behind the rainbow's wall Slipping and sliding All along the waterfall with you My brown-eyed girl You're my brown-eyed girl Do you remember when We used to sing Did you guess it? I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you knew what song I was going into. I thought it was pretty great. Pretty on the nose, right? Um, so let's jump into the next short story. This one is going to be on another classical tale, especially if you're from a German lineage. This is another character who's really popped off in recent years uh, with their popularity, but it was a lot of fun. This one uh, I found online from Prep Post was the name of it, and the writer was no... No pun intended, you'll see. The writer was Noel Burrier. I don't know if that's the real name or a pen name, but uh, that's the story. Let's get into it. 
There isn't even a word to describe how bad my twin sister Charlie has been this year. She started the year by cutting our mom's hair and pouring soda on her laptop. And it's not even the worst thing she did. What makes the whole situation worse is the fact that we are 13 years old and she's still acting just like a toddler. My mom has been going through some tough times lately, so I figured I'd try to do something to make my sister behave. Hey, Charlie, I greeted as I approached my sister on the couch. She was doodling in her notebook. You have my attention for 20 seconds. Then I start throwing these at you. Charlie spat as she gestured toward a plate of small crackers and cheese that sat beside her. Charlie Gray's Christmas, is that any way to talk to your sister? Our mom scolded from the other room. Sorry, but nothing Madeline ever says matters. Hey, I thought, ignoring her death glare, I carried on. Charlie, it's December 1st. In this past year, you've gotten suspended seven times and expelled once. Mom has grounded you more times than I can count. You even had the police called on you twice. And? It was then that I realized I didn't know where I was going with this speech. W well, have you heard of Krampus? I blurted. What's that, another stupid nerd book you're going to tell me about? No, Krampus is a German mythical creature. The story goes that Saint Nicholas... You mean Santa Claus? Charlie interrupted. No, not the same thing. Anyway, St. Nicholas goes out to the houses of all the children and brings them toys on the eve of St. Nicholas Day, which is on December 6th. However, Krampus, who basically looks like a half-goat, half-demon, comes with St. Nicholas to make a lot of noise and take away the bad children. I'll have to thank my German teacher for telling me that story. What does that have to do with me? My twin hissed. I'm trying to tell you that Krampus is going to come take you away on the night of December 5th if you don't start behaving better, I bellowed. You think I'm going to believe that story and become your identical angel? That's not how I work. You're not going to control me no matter how hard you try. Charlie stormed off after hurling a small block of cheese at me. That did not go as planned. A few days later, December 5th rolled around. Snow was on the ground, my family's tree was up, stockings were hung, gingerbread cookies were baked, and holiday lights were shining. My family prepares everything holiday-related quite early. I didn't stop reminding Charlie about Krampus. She decided to avoid me like I was the Black Plague. To get into the holiday season, Mom and I thought we should invite our next-door neighbors over to watch Home Alone. When they arrived, we chatted for a bit while Charlie hid up in her room. Eventually, it came time for the movie to start. Madeline, why don't you go tell Charlie that the movie's about to start? Mom asked. Why? She seems perfectly happy alone in her room. This isn't up for debate. Go get your sister now. But Madeline J. Christmas, do it now. Fine, I mumbled as I began to trudge up the stairs. It turns out Charlie wasn't perfectly happy. I walked into her room to find her crying on her bed, clutching the stuffed ferret our dad gave her for Christmas last year. Charlie, what's wrong? Go away, my sister sobbed. I glanced at her shirt and realized she was wearing her The American Spirit shirt that dad gave her a few years ago. I finally realized what was going on. Is this about dad? I questioned. Maybe. Has this entire year been about dad? I just barely finished my sentence before Charlie burst into tears. She suddenly began to explain everything. Some of it already knew, and she had still told me. She told me about how Dad was the closest thing she ever had to a best friend. How he was the one who took her to her first concert. How the two girls woke up last Christmas to find gifts from their dad with notes attached saying, I'll be back next year. How they haven't heard from him since. Charlie even told me that she's misbehaving all year because she misses Dad so much and had no idea how to express her emotions. She also told me that because Dad's side of the family was German, he had already told her about Krampus, and she had avoided me these last few days because she was terrified of Krampus. 
I'm so sorry I didn't tell you about this sooner. I've just been so scared, I guess. I thought he'd be back by now, because he said in his note he'd be back this year, Charlie said through tears. Charlie, you don't need to worry. I'm sure Dad will come back someday. And besides, he said he'd be back in a year. It's only December 5th, so there's still a few weeks of hope left, I reassured my sister. Y you know what? You're right. I need to fix this. I'm so sorry about my behavior. Tell Mom I'll be downstairs in a few minutes. I just need to compose myself. You guys can start the movie without me. Sure thing. Come down when you're ready. I ambled down the stairs, explained to Mom what happened, apologized to the neighbors, and sat down to watch the film. We'd only been watching a few moments before I heard the ruckus upstairs. Knowing Charlie was upstairs, I bolted out of the room, up the steps, and into her room. Upon entering her room, I didn't see my twin. All I saw was a note on her bed that read, Merry Christmas, Love Krampus. That's right. I read a Krampus story. Why not? You know, it's hard to find images of Krampus that aren't just too similar. Um, there are a lot of takes on the, the masks and stuff, but, I mean, there's just so much of them are just the same thing. Anyway, yeah, let's get into a... No, it's not going to be a Christmas song. Let's go ahead and get that out of your head. But it's another one of my absolute favorite oldies. Children behave That's what they say when we Watch how you play They don't understand And so we're running just as fast as we can Holding on to one another's hand Trying to get away into the night Then you put your arms around me And we tumble to the ground And then you say, I think we're alone now There doesn't seem to be anyone around I think we're alone now. The beating of our heart is the only sound. Look at the way we gotta hide what we're doing. It's what would they say? Yeah, they know. And so we're running just as fast as we can. Holding on to one another's hand Trying to get away into the night And then you put your arms around me As you tumble to the ground And then you say, I think we're alone now There doesn't seem to be anyone around I think we're alone now The beating of our heart is the only sound I think we're alone doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone. Beating of our heart is the only sound. Running just as fast as we can. Holding on to one another's hand. Trying to get away into the night. And then you put your arms around me as you stumble to the ground. And then you say, I think we're alone now. Doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound.
a great song. So many great memories of, uh, especially like road trips. This is what it, my parents would always play oldies. I just always remember that song coming on. It's so catchy. All right, we're getting into the, the last short story. And this one was written by Ye Ozaki. And you can find it on st storyberries.com. And uh, just to, to forewarn you, it is a uh, vintage fairy tale. But man, I read this and then I was like, dude, that is a really cool short story. It's not one that I've read before. I am a big fan of short stories. Um, so I thought it was really fun, really entertaining. Let's get into it. Long, long ago in Kyoto, the people of the city were terrified by accounts of a dreadful ogre who, it was said, haunted the gate of Rashomon at twilight and seized whoever passed by. The missing victims were never seen again, so it was whispered that the ogre was a horrible cannibal who not only killed the unhappy victims, but ate them also. Now, everybody in the town and neighborhood was in great fear, and no one durst adventure out after sunset near the gate of Rashomon. Now at this time, there lived in Kyoto a general named Rako, who had made himself famous for his brave deeds. Some time before this, he made the country ring with his name, for he had attacked Oyama, where a band of ogres lived with their chief, who instead of wine drank the blood of human beings. He had routed them all and cut off the head of the chief monster. This brave warrior was always followed by a band of faithful knights. In this band, there were five knights of great valor, one evening, as the five knights sat at a feast, quaffing sake in their rice bowls and eating all kinds of fish, raw and stewed and broiled, and toasting each other's health and exploits, the first knight, Hojo, said to the others, Have you all heard the rumor that every evening after sunset there comes an ogre to the gated Rashomon, and that he seizes all who pass by? The second knight, Utanapi, answered him, saying, Do not talk such nonsense. All the ogres were killed by our chief Rako in Ioma. It cannot be true, because even if the ogres did escape from that great killing, they would not dare to show themselves in this city, for they know that our brave master would once again attack them if he knew that any of them were still alive. Then do you disbelieve what I say and think I am telling you a falsehood? No, I do not think you are telling a lie, said Watanabe. But you have heard some old woman's story, which is not worth believing. Then the best plan is to prove what I say by going there yourself and finding out yourself whether it is true or not, said Hojo. Watanabe, the second knight, could not bear the thought that his companion should believe he was afraid, so he answered quickly, Of course, I will go at once and find out for myself. So Watanabe at once got ready to go. He buckled on his long sword and put on a coat of armor and tied his large helmet. When he was ready to start, he said to the others, Give me something so that I can prove I've been there. Then one of them got a roll of writing paper and his box of Indian ink and brushes, and the four comrades wrote their names on the piece of paper. I will take this, said Watanabe, and put it in the gate of Rashomon. So tomorrow morning, will you all go look at it? I may be able to catch an ogre or two by then. And he mounted his horse and rode off gallantly. It was a very dark night and there was neither moon nor star to light Watanabe on his way. To make the darkness worse, a storm came on. The rain fell heavily and the wind howled like wolves in the mountains. Any ordinary man would have trembled at the thought of growing out of the doors. But Watanabe was a brave warrior and dauntless, and his honor and word were at stake. So he sped on into the night, 
while his companions listened to the sound of his horse's hooves dying away in the distance. Then shut the sliding shutters closed and gathered round the charcoal fire and wondered what would happen and whether their comrade would encounter one of those horrible oni. At last, Watanabe reached the gate of Rashomon, but peer as he might through the darkness, he could see no sign of an ogre. It is just as I thought, said Watanabe to himself. There are certainly no ogres here. It is only an old woman's story. I will stick this paper on a gate so that the others can see that I have been here when they come tomorrow. And then I will make my way home and laugh at them all. He fastened the piece of paper, signed by all four of his companions, on the gate, and then turned his horse's head toward home. As he did, so he became aware that someone was behind him, and at the same time a voice called out to him to wait. Then his helmet was seized from the back. Who are you? said Watanabe fearlessly. He then put out his hand and groped around to find out who it was that had held him by the helmet. As he did, so he touched something that felt like an arm. It was covered with hair and as big round as the trunk of a tree. Watanabe knew at once that this was the arm of an ogre, so he drew his sword and cut at it fearlessly. There was a loud yell of pain and the ogre dashed in front of the warrior. Watanabe's eyes grew large with wonder, for he saw the ogre was taller than the great gate. His eyes were flashing like mirrors in the sunlight, and his huge mouth was opened wide. In the monster breathed, flames of fire shot out of his mouth. The ogre thought to terrify his foe, but Watanabe never flinched. He attacked the ogre with all his strength, and thus fought face to face for a long time. At last, the ogre, finding that he could never frighten or beat Watanabe, and that he might himself be beaten, took to flight. But Watanabe, determined not to let the monster escape, put spurs to his horse and gave chase. But though the knight rode very fast, the ogre ran faster. To his disappointment, he found himself unable to overtake the monster, who was gradually lost to sight. Watanabe returned to the gate where the fierce fight had taken place and got down from his horse. As he did, so he stumbled on something laying on the ground. Stooping to pick it up, he found that it was one of the ogre's huge arms, which he must have slashed off in the fight. His joy was great at having secured such a prize, for this was best of all proofs of his adventure with the ogre. So he took it up carefully, carried it home as a trophy of his victory. When he got back, he showed the arm to his comrades, who one and all called him the hero of their band and gave him a great feast. His wonderful deed was soon noised abroad by Kyoto, and people from far and near came to see the ogre's arm. Watanabe now began to grow uneasy as to how he should keep the arm in safety, for he knew that the ogre to whom it belonged to was still alive. He felt sure that one day or other, as soon as the ogre got over his scare, he would come try to get his arm back again. Watanabe therefore made a box of the strongest wood and banded with iron. In this he placed the arm, and then he sealed down with a heavy lid, refusing to open it for anyone. He kept the box in his own room and took charge of it himself, never allowing it out of his sight. Now one night he heard someone knocking on the porch, asking for admittance. When the servant went to the door to see who it was, there was only an old woman, very respectable in appearance. On being asked who she was and what her business was, the old woman replied with a smile that she had been nurse to the master of the house when he was a little baby. If the lord of the house were at home, she begged to be allowed to see him. The servant left the old woman at the door and went to tell his master that the old nurse had come to see him. Watanabe thought it was strange that she should come to him at night, but at the thought of his old nurse, who had been like a foster mother to him, 
and whom he had not seen for a long time, a very tender feeling sprang up for her in his heart. He ordered the servant to show her in. The old woman was ushered into the room, and after the customary bows and greetings were over, she said, Master, the report of your brave fight with the ogre at the gate of Rashomon is so widely known that even your poor old nurse has heard of it. Is it really true, what everyone says, that you cut off one of the ogre's arms? If you did, your deed is highly to be praised. I was very disappointed, said Watanabe, that I was not able to take the monster captive, which was what I wished to do instead of only cutting off an arm. I'm very proud to think, answered the old woman, that my master was so brave as to dare cut off an ogre's arm. There's nothing that can be compared to your courage. Before I die, it was a great wish of my life to see this arm, she added pleadingly. No, said Watanabe. I'm sorry, but I cannot grant your request. But why? asked the old woman. Because, replied Watanabe, ogres are very revengeful creatures, and if I open the box, there is no telling, but that ogre may suddenly appear and carry off his arm. I have had a box made on purpose, with a very strong lid, and in this box I keep the ogre's arm secure, and I never show it to anyone, whatever happens. Your precaution is very reasonable, said the old woman, but I am your old nurse, so surely you would not refuse to show me the arm. I have only just heard of your brave act, and not being able to wait until the morning, I came at once to ask you to show it to me. Watanabe was very troubled at the old woman's pleading, but he still persisted in refusing. Then the old woman said, Do you suspect me of being a spy sent by the ogre? No, of course not. I do not suspect you of being the ogre spy, for you are my old nurse, answered Watanabe. Then you cannot surely refuse to show me the arm any longer, entreated the old woman. For it is the great wish of my heart to see once in my life the arm of an ogre. Watanabe could not hold out his refusal any longer. So he gave in at last, saying, Then I will show you the ogre's arm since you so earnestly wish to see it. Come, follow me. And he led the way to his own room, the old woman following. When they were both in the room, Watanabe shut the door carefully, and then going towards the big box which stood in the corner of the room, he took off the heavy lid. He then called to the old woman to come near and look at it, for he never took the arm out of the box. What is it like? Let me have a good look at it, said the old nurse with a joyful face. She came nearer and nearer, as if she were afraid till she stood right against the box. Suddenly she plunged her hand into the box and seized the arm, crying with a fearful voice which made the room shake. Oh, Joy, I've got my arm back. And from an old woman, she was suddenly transformed into the towering figure of the frightful ogre. Watanabe sprang back and was unable to move for a moment. So great was his astonishment. But recognizing the ogre who had attacked him at the gate of Rashomon, he determined with his usual courage to put an end to him this time. He seized his sword, drew it out of his sheath in a flash, and tried to cut the ogre down. So quick was Watanabe that the creature had narrow escaped. But the ogre sprang up to the ceiling and burst through the roof, disappearing into the mist and clouds. In this way, the ogre escaped with his arm. The knight gnashed his teeth with disappointment, but that was all he could do. He waited in patience for another opportunity to dispatch the ogre, but the latter was afraid of Watanabe's strength and daring and never troubled Kaoto again. So once more the people of the city were able to go out without fear, even at nighttime, and the brave deeds of Watanabe have never been forgotten. After the chaos of dealing with an ogre, and the chaos of ripping their arm 
in the chaos of hiding it and then having it stolen again. But surviving the whole encounter and still being labeled a hero, there's only one song that I can think of that would play well after this. David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, hallelujah. Faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair, she broke your throne and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. best it wasn't much i couldn't feel so i tried to touch i've told the truth i didn't come to fool you and even though it all went wrong i'll stand before the lord of song with nothing but my tongue but I Does that song still hit you guys like it hits me? I mean, come on, Leonard Cohen. It's just classic. All right. I promised you guys earlier 
that I was going to give you a little taste of me screwing up trying to pronounce all those names in the Cthulhu short story that Neil Gaiman wrote. Um, so I'm going to put that in here now with the list of all the sources that I used for this show. Now, some of the pictures you notice won't have sources on there, particularly the Krampus ones and the Siren one, because those were off of Pixabay. Um, so they don't have a like a, a traditional copyright. You don't owe anyone credit for using it. Um, but I'm going to throw that up now and then come right back because I have one last surprise for everybody. I spent my... I spent my first few thousand years myself, he said, Asatoth, Yagsatotha. Myself, he said, Asatoth, Yagsatoth, Nyarlathotep, Satahuga, La, Shubnagorath, Shubnagorath. Shabnagurath, Young Hagath, Young Yagath, and due to some particularly eldritch, and due to some particularly eldritch district, as the delightfully foetid charnel smells of the swamp, as the as the delightfully foetid charnel smells of the swamp, miasmatized around me. You lack. You lack Waneshikin. You lack Waneshikin. You lack Waneshikin. Guys, we've come to the end. And I want you guys to know that aside from just doing this kind of music, there's other kinds of music that I play as well. Um, but I'm also a singer-songwriter. Um, I have never recorded an album, never even done an EP. It's on my bucket list. Maybe I'll get to it someday. But I consider myself a pretty busy person. I do want to do that. But... I thought there would be one way that I can end this, and I really hope you guys enjoyed our time together. Um, I wanted to close this out with something original. Um, so yes, I'm going to change and then play my acoustic. And um, this particular song is something I wrote a little while back. It's called Until the End. I'm going to do an acoustic. I hope you guys enjoy it. And thank you guys so much for uh, tuning in and hanging out throughout this entire show. It has been such a blast. And hey, if you guys like this, let Greg know. Let myself know. Maybe we'll do some other things like this in the future, um, whether you know through an online con or maybe on one of our pages. I don't know. This was a lot of fun. Greg, I appreciate you for letting me do this. Uh, Sierra Nova Comics, uh, congrats on your anniversary. It's been, a, it's been one, huh? It's been a heck of a year, and I think this was a fun way to uh, kind of unwind. But yeah, appreciate you guys. You guys know where to find me, CatalystComicsStudio.com. Or you can look up Beards and Comics Podcast. Whatever you want to do, go do it. This is just a fun time that we wanted to take a little time and just hang out and do something really stupid and dumb. But here is Until the End. Hold on, don't let go. It's what we were told. Mind your heart and cherish your soul. But the older I get, the time I live makes me wonder. Where 
Yeah. 